back. It's Film Suck. And in this episode, Eileen interviews her old friends, directors, documentary film directors, P. David Ebersole and Todd Hughes. Um, they just made um, a documentary about the legendary Pierre Cardin, House of Cardin, and it um, will premiere in Venice Film Festival in early September. And so you will have an exclusive <laughs> insight into what was it like? Yeah. Well, let's just quickly say, though, that, that it looks like you're going to be able to be there at the festival and have special comp tickets and go in and see the film. And Pierre Cardin sounds like he's going to be there. And how many tickets? Yeah, I think he reserved like 100 uh, tickets. They say that he reserved 80. <laughs> no, yeah, like, like 80 tickets. Tick amount of tickets, which just usually is not allowed. You get like 10. Yeah, 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 but he also, but what he also did, he, he's going to throw, he's, first of all, he's from Venice, so it's right. his, like, home base, mm -hmm. and he, he's going to throw, he's 97, so, well, it's like, it's, he's getting there, mm -hmm. he's going to throw, like, a big after party, mm -hmm. which apparently, I guess, I'll be able to, yeah. to get into. Yeah, that would be a hell <laughs> yeah. of a party, old-time fashion yeah. world, you know, that's some serious partying. Yeah, yeah, I do have to say, I mean, it's obviously half... <laughs> half kidding but um so I wasn't part of the interview but when I listened to it I realized well yeah good decision for me to go there because I forgot who was it Todd or if you David said that um basically Pierre Cardin uh he meets you he ha can look at you I don't know once and if he likes you you're on the payroll right right Did you hear that? I'm like all right uh, that's right I, I like that yes. I like that yes. and a number of Im of important people who wind up with big careers like I think it's Jean-Paul Gaultier is one of the people that he just yeah. meets once and says I like you <laughs> you're hired and that's how he got his training yeah, yeah so it's and that's how it what happened to them you know basically he meets yeah, them but once. not only fashion people <laughs> just different just he's supposedly yeah. yeah just people they, around show business not only right. fashion designers which i mean it sounds kind of funny but yeah i think todd and, and p david was kind of somewhat seriously saying the guy is clairvoyant <laughs> but at the same time i mean i don't know it might be a bit pushy and he's clearly a genius um mm. and he invented the whole just branding of clothing, but I don't know, clairvoyant. Yeah, Pierre Cardin. <laughs> if you're not into fashion at all, he's he's a huge, huge name. Um, he he's an innovator, and one of the um, clips from the film, which we've been able to look at a, a screener of, um, there's someone interviewing him way back in '59, I think it is, and saying, "Well, you're essentially the socialist of of the fashion world because he pioneered ready to wear. He was the first major fashion designer to do clothing for ordinary people, which was considered a shocking." Mm -hmm insane thing to do in the world of high fashion and he got him shunned for a year or so before of course he just set a trend and everyone did it he was the first person to what um do a men's fashion line and and hire male models which was considered you know that was just something that wasn't done it was considered shockingly you know effeminate and people of color right yeah he was Kills the first around. to have um yes uh, women of color as fashion models um he's the guy who designed the space age kind of look of the he was just enamored of the NASA program and going to the moon and all that stuff. And he designed mm -hmm. the, the space age look that was had unisex styles, um, used a lot of like clear vinyl um, or just vinyl in fabrics, you know, did use synthetics, just did all the stuff that was that was very.
very pioneering and he's just a big futurist as a fashion designer. And of course, you know, it's not as it's not as beautiful a legacy that he started that he started brand putting his brand his kind of PC brand on absolutely a million different products and also kind of led led the charge in that as as well. So he's just a pioneer in a lot of ways. And House of Cardin is is, you know, just uh, you know, partly celebrating but partly investigating, you know, who's this guy behind this. And yes, it turns out one of the one of the reveals is he's Italian and not French. He's completely identified with with French fashion design and then when France was this Paris was the center of the design world and it turns out he's this Italian dude who fled, you know, Italian fascism with his family, comes out of poverty, absolute absolute poverty um, um, to build this fashion empire and now he's 97 and he's still at it it's a little bit awesome um, so yeah the movie's um, exciting what? it's exciting to talk to my old friends of course we have a long history together they've been an independent film a long time they started off doing um, you know fiction films and they've had a kind of late career um, segue in the last what I don't know within the last uh, five to eight years, I'd say. And they've done a series of very eccentric, but really hyper entertaining um, and informative. And very successful films. Very right? successful documentary, independent documentaries, um, which that's a, that's a hard, that's a hard category to do well in, but they've done very well. So, you know, they've either worked as their writers, directors, and producers, and in various capacities, they've worked on Room 237, which is, um, that's the one you might've seen. It's um, about people obsessing over, um, um, Kubrick's The Shining and people actually have elaborate conspiracy theories that are very hilarious about what the film means and they study it and watch it a hundred times and fixate on it. There's that one. There's Manfield, Mansfield 6067. That's about Jane Mansfield, the the star, 5060 star who got gets embroiled with Anton LaVey of the Church of Satan. <laughs> and, and I was in that. I did a brief uh, performance as a professor who's an expert in uh, the satanic um, rep- representations <laughs> of the devil essentially on screen. I had to study up to do that. Um, mm-hmm. um, what else have they done? Uh, Dear Dear Mom Love Share, all about you know this kind of extraordinary mother of the artist share of all things. Um, and there's one I'm blanking on. What's the other one? Oh no, hit so hard. It's about Patty Schemmel, who's the the drummer from Hole, and it's a very frank um, biographical portrait of of her. Um, so yeah, so they've done a whole series, and this is just a continuation. Um, now working with and with total access to Pierre Cardin, all of his you know his various spaces that he lives and works in. I mean, this is a man who bought Maxime's in Paris, who bought the castle owned by Marquis de Sade, who had designed for himself. I don't think this came up in the in the interviews. Uh, something called the Bubble House. And it's this massive mansion that's pink and is all a series bubble of bubble-like round shapes. It just is the most... Who built it? Forgetting he, he, now. He bought... Oh, okay. I think it was to his design specifications, but you really should Google it. It's just this like okay. what <laughs> mad madhouse, and he's yeah. obsessed with the with the circle as a geometric um, figure of intense meaning. And there's a whole montage on that in the middle of the documentary. Um, so and all in all, it's really a, it's it's been great to see friends really um, kind of hit pay dirt after years of you know being an mm-hmm. independent film is a really tough thing to do um, if you're not independently wealthy. 
uh, <laughs> you don't want to be an independent film, <laughs> basically. Which they were not, right? No. They were like self-made. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they were scrounging around with us in the early days trying to make it in fictional mm-hmm. filmmaking. And, you know, they had some success, you know, you know, um, kind of uh, limited release type th- stuff, film festival, you know, stuff. The same type of thing we were all doing um, back in the mm-hmm. you know, 90s to early 2000s, um, but they've had more success, you know, than they had with fiction film with their with their nonfiction, which is unusual. Yeah, very unusual, like the trajectory. Yeah, because frequently, or at least of the known cases, you might start with documentary and even do good, and then you sort of right you segue the, the other way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the That's... other way. But I I just realized, yeah, you didn't ask them that, but. Whatever I'll I'll might I might uh, you ask uh, I, yeah I'll interrogate them in person they won't be able to run away uh, right, from my grabby from my grabby hands right. we'll do a mini follow up after you September six is the date of the premiere mm-hmm. and after you see we'll just do a little update uh-huh. uh, update reporting from maybe <laughs> depending on when it falls but yeah we'll we'll do that okay I don't know do do you have any I don't think I've, I'm already probably repeat, repeating remarks that I've you know we've already got in the interview and it's always great to talk to filmmakers who are in the in the the, the throes of the process they literally had just finished um the edit um that was gonna that was gonna appear there might still be some changes they we talk about it in the interview um depending on if they're tailoring it to european versus american audiences there's all these complexities that people don't realize when you're when you're getting into trying to get your film you know its best release and in different territories and you've sold certain territories to raise money and it's super super complicated even at a low budget level um so yeah. so anyway well yeah i guess my closer remark would be I, I, and i bet i'm not alone here mm-hmm. even though it would sound horrible i i really thought before hearing from you about house mm-hmm. of Cardin that pierre Cardin was definitely dead right by now i know He's and so i think elderly. i'm really not alone at, <laughs> i'm really not alone at this no yeah i don't i didn't even know how old he was i thought like well i guess he was a gunner and then turned out no yeah <laughs> he is alive and, and doing pretty well i think everyone else i, I think that comes out in the interview that everyone else of his generation is is gone i would think but you know so many yeah. fashion designers have died actually fairly recently i mean within the last number of years i mean lagerfeld just died um who else is That's there i'm blanking there's just but you know but they're there's they pretty much <laughs> i'm not a big like been dropping head but yeah and probably most of our listeners are not big fashion heads but it's a no but it's a fascinating yeah. world it really is <laughs> I'm perhaps too interested for someone, you know, who doesn't have money and can't afford <laughs> most clothes. I still have an unholy fascination with the whole thing. With the, just the fashion world? Yeah, just fashion in general. Yes, that world in particular, um, which is hilarious and crazy. And, you know, if you watch Absolutely Fabulous, you really feel like you have a line on the madness of the fashion world. Um <laughs> But also just clothes, yeah. clothes in general and the effect clothes can have in the world. And if the, when, every time there's a museum show of somebody's clothes, I always inevitably go because there's... <laughs> oh, speaking of which, we should probably plug it in. There is oh, yeah. um, a Pierre Cardin Brooklyn Museum exhibit, pr- pretty big. And, and really clothing exhibits, it might sound frivolous, but they're amazing. If you go, you just have no idea what goes into those, those super expensive prototypical designs. I mean, they're like amazing sculptures and they you know they often they modify tend to modify those things for people who are actually going to for streetwear so to see mm-hmm. the kind of mad the mad inventiveness of clothing at that level is really like looking at it is look, like looking at artwork so i can't recommend it enough yeah isn't it brooklyn what institute something like that it's there's a big 
Pierre Cardin in New York. So don't no, miss just it. the Brooklyn Brooklyn Museum. Just Brooklyn it's Museum. Like a big museum in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's an extensive retrospective. So yeah, do it. Yeah, if you're there. <laughs> All right. Um, All right. Okay. So so uh, yes, interview coming up. Um, hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back again in two weeks after this. Filmsuck is proud to bring uh, Todd Hughes and P. David Ebersole of the company Ebersole Hughes Company, um, who have, have really carved out a niche, I think, of, of really fascinating um, independent films with uh, highly unusual, sometimes even deliberately, <laughs> kind of outrageous subject matters that are really um you know, been a fascinating series. I'll just mention a few of them. Hit So Hard, um, a film biography of Patty Schemmel of the band Hole, it feels very frankly with her um, struggles with drug addiction. Um, and I should also add, you write, you produce, you direct, and in, it's in various capacities. Are you writer, director? Are you just producer? Are you R3? Um, Room 237. Um, was a, it seems like it was a quite a success. You were you were executive producers on that, I believe. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, right. that's yep. that's the film I've mentioned to a lot of people, and they know and love it. It's the one about you know the the various people who have obsessions with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, um, and have elaborate theories about what it actually means if you can read the kind of secret, almost occult content of the film. Um, Dear Mom, Love Share, all about the fascinating mother of Share, <laughs> which is a very interesting angle <laughs> to approach um, Share at all. Um, but any angle to Share is a fascinating one, and then. Right. Most recently is Manfield 6667, which is about the last years in the life of Jane Mansfield when she got um, briefly entangled with Anton LaVey, the head of the, the, the Church of Satan, um, and yes. may have put a curse on her, which led to her you know, horribly violent death. I was proud to be mm-hmm. a little, a small part of that film. Um, <laughs> a very, a very important part oh, of that film. You're very correct. correct. Yeah. I had to study up to be in on it because I was supposed to be playing a professor who's, who's a, what an expert in the image of Satan on film. <laughs> we should carry you around with us to be our publicist. That was an excellent show. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Thank you. But Eileen, don't forget that our history with making films together goes way, way back. back. Yeah. God. Because <laughs> we worked on your um, short films. That's right. And I was in, br- and briefly in, I was kind of an extra in uh, The New Women. That's right. During Mary Warnaw. Yes. Right. And then we worked together doing uh, Two Divided by Three, the short film for Richard Pratt, who went on to do documentaries like us. So he's done, he did um, the great movie about Bill Cunningham. Oh, that's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Is it like a, a and, documentary filmmaker clique? And do you, do you meet periodically and discuss things? You know, uh, Richard has always been one of my closest friends. So yes, we, we stay in touch and we're always sort of just aghast at how our, how we naturally overlap without even having talked to each other about projects. Like here we are doing a fashion doc mm-hmm. and it never really even occurred to us. It's like, Oh, right. Richard did a fashion doc. Oh, wow. So we're, you know, we're, we just are constantly always kind of finding overlap. Um, we were just at the smokehouse in Burbank and I had this memory, dim memory of being there with you and Greg Shershwack. Oh my God. And it was like a meeting for the hook arm. Oh my God. The hook arm. <laughs> That's right. That is so long ago. How terrifying. Yes.
<laughs> it's been a long road. <laughs> yeah. And you guys anyway, seem like you're just we, doing better than ever. You've just gone up and up from strength to strength. So many people have sort of bailed out on filmmaking, including me. But you carried up. Well, it's been a completely unforeseen thing that we would end up in documentaries. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, now this last one, it was almost like divine intervention that we got to meet somebody that we had idolized and no intention really of wanting to do a documentary with him. And it just sort of happened. And Oh, that's and amazing. Then, oh, I thought you were at least half thinking of doing it. So well, well, half 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 of doing it. I mean, I think whenever, whenever there's a subject that you care a lot about and think a lot about, then you think, I wonder if that would make a great documentary. Mm-hmm. But we didn't, in our first initial attempt to stalk slash meet uh, Pierre Cardin, <laughs> think that we were doing anything more than trying to get a picture for Facebook to impress our friends. And, you know, like we were just wanting to shake his hand and tell him what a great inspiration he was to us. And then it just kind of took off from there. But, you know, we moved to Palm Springs and that's when we really started discovering him as the furniture designer. Mm-hmm and became obsessed with his furniture. And then we found out he did a car, bought the car. Of course, it's fabulous. He had a record label, so that really sent us off the deep end. <laughs> and then we were, in, we were in Paris, and we went to the – he has a museum, mm-hmm. which was closed. But we went into the shop next door, and we were showing the guy who worked there, who was very beautiful, by the way, mm-hmm. all the pictures of our house in Palm Springs. And he said, oh, well, you would love to meet Monsieur Cardin. And we had never, till that moment, stopped to think there was a Pierre Cardin. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was just this yeah. mythical brand. Like the brand has become so huge, you forget there's still still a by now elderly man of 97 in the world. Right, yeah. you know. It's, like he's, he's Kleenex, you know. You're like, he's just a name. <laughs> right. But then, then we just wanted to, we just couldn't believe it. And... Also, how together is a 95-year-old man going to be? But we stalked him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, within we walked into his store a year later after that incident. Mm-hmm. And, you know, within two hours, we were sitting with the man. And the idea of the documentary came up. And he just said, let's go. He said, when, when do you want to start? That is amazing. So he didn't, we were- he didn't want to see your films or... <laughs> vet you no 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 i think that actually because his his nephew rodrigo who's also in the film um had had pre-vetted us i think that they had gone online and looked us up i think that they knew that we had a certain reputation well we were in paris too at the moment with mansfield we were screening at the atranche festival Mm -hmm. so they knew we were in paris with a documentary Mm -hmm. that was screening at a festival Mm -hmm. And we had just gotten this tip from the from the uh, guy who ran the shop down in the down in the Marais that Cardin goes to his flagship store mm-hmm. usually on a Tuesday morning mm-hmm. and walks through and makes sure that everything is to his liking. And so, what we did the next time when we planned to go to Paris for the Etrange Film Festival, I actually planned our flight so that we would get in on Monday night so that we could wake up, get dressed, and go in to the store on Tuesday morning and try to meet our hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it was, it was less than a completely chance uh, encounter, which is why Todd said we stalked him. Wow. Yeah. And, and <laughs> what was he, was he like what you expected? Do you have, did you have an expectation of what he'd be like? 
no, he's, you know, the first day we met him, he was a very old man uh-huh. and he doesn't speak English. We don't speak mm-hmm. French. I mean, we all speak sort of schoolgirl English French. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just kind of overwhelming. But I must say that, it, you know, he said, yeah, when you want to start, let's go. And then it was at that point, I think we really started researching who he was. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh, my God, we've just wow. discovered a pot of gold. This guy, you know, he, he did the costumes for Beauty and the no, Beast. No, I had no idea. Wow. This guy hired Jean-Paul Gaultier yeah. and Philippe Stark when they were 17 years old. He just met them like he met us and said yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. We say in the in the age of uh, Weinstein, the deeper we dug into his past, the more wonderful, unsung achievements he has done mm-hmm. that really have changed the world we live in. He's remarkable. He, what strikes me most about his design and, all, and always has is, is he still owns the look of the future that most people think of as the future if they have any optimism. I mean, now we're in very end times, apocalyptic times, and I don't know that anyone yes. really expects a good future. But if they do, they still think of that 60s look. I do anyway. Sure. And well, the Jetsons, you know, that yeah. whole sort of feeling of that the future was going to bring us amazing technology mm-hmm. and a different life. And it was, like you said, it was complete and utter optimism. Mm-hmm. Well, Jean-Michel Jarre, who also was a delightful discovery to find out that they were friends mm-hmm. and that Pierre had sponsored his early career. But he was telling us that when, you know, in the early 70s, when they were collaborating, the future was so exciting. Mm-hmm. He said, now the future is not exciting to people. And that's exactly but right. I, I say it, this often to my students, like, can you think of any vision of the future now that's widespread that isn't dystopian? I mean, we just, we right. ever had another vision of the future. It's very strange. What does Pierre Cardin do about that? Does he just hold to his, his 60s vision or does he have another vision to offer? Oh, he is always evolving, mm-hmm. and he is so excited that young people find him interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, he is very fascinated that hip-hop culture has embraced him. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting because the one project that is sort of his tilting at windmills still, his, his dream project that he's not yet been able to achieve, is the Palais Lumière. And we do uh, mention it briefly in the film at the end. It is a... Uh, utopian city Mm -hmm. inside of a massive glass skyscraper that is, you know, uh, exactly the opposite of what you might think of today as a glass skyscraper. Mm. It's circular Mm. with um, sort of Saturn-like kind of um, rings around it. Uh, You know, it reminds you more of something that you might see in Logan's Run than, you know, that you would see in Dubai. (laughs) So... It's uh, it's just this gorgeous glass uh, city uh-huh. inside of a building, and so he's all so his his vision for the future continues. Well, and, and uh, you're right; it still seems kind of like and it's green, sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it employs people. Like his whole idea of it is is that you could you could start creating a different kind of 
of city environment. And you're like, wow, he's thinking in that way now. It's, it's fabulous because, of course, what do people associate with, you, with, with the architecture that we're now kind of re- reluctantly stuck with? It's the glass box, which as a kind of corporate prison <laughs> is, is kind of an image. Right. So to, to, and you do a wonderful thing in your film, right in the, kind of the middle of you know, the importance of the circle form to Cardin. Yeah. And it, it yeah. just relieves your mind to think of something circular as the design, um, the dominant design element for, for a future world. It's been really fun to just get to know him. And when you see him at work and that he is so simple, so pure, right? He's so complex, but yet it's just so simple on the outside. And just even down to like, don't make it symmetrical, mm-hmm. right? Every time he makes a decision, it's just do the opposite of what people expect. Mm-hmm. But, but keep it simple, right? It's about circles. It's about shapes. It's about geometry. Mm-hmm. It's, right. And it's, it's just so striking so- to look at. You, you start the film with this wonderful montage of kind of people trying to talk about who he is and, and what he is and what it all means. And, and we're just getting blasts of visual blasts of like such dare. They still are such daring designs and such bold use of color and shape that you're just yeah. kind of dazzling. We've well, been talking about the it's it's interesting because part of the film also talks about how he he goes to these um, kind of, you know, for the for the time dystopian cultures like uh, Russia, mm-hmm. China, uh, even Japan at that time. And that people were monotone. They were dressing in, you know, uh, Mao outfits and even like watching um the, uh, the tale, where everything is like is stamped in colors to represent who you are um and then and cardan came along and brought color to the world and shifted and changed it we were saying today when you look around everyone is dressed in these drab ugly uniforms mm-hmm. of well, it's like almost streetwear. like people this, naturally are evolving towards a communism that Pierre Cardin helped break free of <laughs> when it was imposed. But now people by their own choice now <laughs> tend to not want to stand up. They want to blend in and be the same. Yeah, I find myself and tragically addicted to black. <laughs> it's tra- And I know it's tragic. Right. <laughs> and I look at you guys well, in, black, <laughs> in your flowered, colorful flowered suits and I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm not having any fun. <laughs> well, black is eternally chic so well that's something but but i am aware of that's definitely something. having a uniform like everyone feels hard pressed <laughs> everyone seems to feel anxious somehow everyone's overworked so there's i think this uniform thing in the worst possible sense <laughs> is really we have a we have an orange car and we look across a parking lot and we can always find our car because every car in the parking lot is white, gray, you know, that metallic blue. Exactly. And so you're just like, oh, there's our, there is our car. It stands out in a world of grayness. And there's something about Cardan's aesthetic that is saying that you need to and should be looking to stand out, express yourself, mm-hmm. be unique. Be wild, and that's why I think when you're saying when you when you see that first sort of visual burst mm-hmm. of of Cardin's vision, you start thinking, "Wow, the world could be so fun and optimistic, mm-hmm. and could take you someplace." Mm-hmm. And why are we so shut down? It's interesting about because we've been saying that it is part of why we think we're so attracted to who he is, what his design is mm-hmm. about, is that it represents a philosophy that we've been sort of struggling to articulate. 
Yeah, you've already jumped ahead to a question I wanted to ask. Like, what what about his design that drew you? And that that does seem like all of a sudden your mind explodes with possibilities and with a kind of physical freedom. I mean, his use of, you know, he breaks out into what ready to wear. And it's, you, you go all through this in your documentary. It's a fascinating story of how he scandalizes the, you know, the, the world of, um, of, of high fashion by suddenly designing for the multitudes. And in fact, he even calls himself, what does he say he is? The first socialist. Socialist, designer. right. Yeah. The first socialist designer. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, what's funny also, again, is that, is that it's not even just about the world of fashion. And I think that's mm. what I think we find so um, compelling about him, which is that he was challenging cultural mm. norms. So that the idea that there was a, a world of people set up where there's a hierarchy of who may enjoy beauty mm-hmm. and who is expected to just travel along in their drudgery, mm. that's part of the reason that he made a decision to what he says is democratized fashion. Mm. So you're trying to figure out how do you say it's okay for the caretaker of, you know, the rich woman to also desire beauty in her life and want fashion and individuality to be part of how she expresses herself. So it wasn't just scandalizing the world of Mm -hmm. fashion. It was taking culture and turning it upside Mm -hmm. down. Which he seems like he's delighted in continuing to do. He's using, you know, yeah. uh, um, I, he makes a um, top model who's fr- who's Japanese, his mu- kind of muse figure, and that's you know breaking out of. The and there of- is nobody on the runway who is a person of mm-hmm. color. In yes. who's the first to use a non-Caucasian model on the right. runway? The first. And then it became de rigueur. I mean, it followed very quickly that that you know, Saint Laurent and others were also embracing kind of a world aesthetic, mm. but, but that it didn't exist. And he didn't even see that it was a barrier. He just, it says Naomi Campbell actually says in our film, if he thought these were the right kind of people to represent mm. his line, then he did it for the right reasons. He just saw the world more internationally. Right. Yeah. And didn't see the closed down culture of French haute couture as the only way that you could express yourself yeah and he seems well he's he's very inspiring like that he really he makes you think of freedom and uh, where we bonded with him too is just getting a breathless thrill from internationalism right different cultures different people he's also the first one who is you know it's again in your film to to design a menswear line and have male models which was considered incredibly bold yeah he was he was the first male model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he 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 designed the first uh, designer line for men and for children, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Although we don't go into that in the mm-hmm. film, um, we t- we show it a little bit. We show it, but again, think about that idea about allowing men to enjoy fashion right. and couture, which is that you're completely breaking the societal norms mm-hmm. of of gender stamping and saying that men need to tamp down themselves, have no feelings, don't express anything outside of the suit Mm -hmm. as your, uh, uh, you know, armor that you go out to, you know, fight the world with every Mm -hmm. day. And women get to be these flowers and delicate things that can have all sorts of enjoyment of that side of your brain. And he thought, why, like, why can't there be this more, you know, wide approach to how men and women can 
dress express themselves and be. And so that's why I say like what's, what we find interesting about him is that there's philosophy below each choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I well, he was also aware of that it was no longer men dressing or women dressing for men. You know, now men might be dressing for other men or women might be dressing mm-hmm. for other women or more importantly, people are dressing for themselves. Right. And there can be an equality of, of, of knowing you're beautiful and wanting to be looked at, which was you know, obviously a part of the taboo again, exactly. you know, walking the catwalk or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as that wonderful, did you see the collectors from Tokyo? No. And the woman is saying like, the wonderful thing about the Cardin smile <laughs> style, it doesn't matter if you're tall or large. It makes you feel beautiful, mm-hmm. whoever you are, right? These clothes make whoever's wearing them feel beautiful. Yeah, and he does such pioneering stuff with like not seeming to conform, at least in an old-fashioned way, to the contours of the body, but kind of to reimagine the shape and movement of the body. Um, and-, and those the clothes he designed in the 50s, mm-hmm. which were more traditional. Mm-hmm. But when you stop and look at them, that he really did – decodify and destructure what was being done and reinterpreted Mm. it and you look and you're like wow he just turned it upside down or Mm -hmm. you know just simple geometric things that just hadn't been done that look amazing someone was joking to us about one of pierre cardin's hats that it that it's like a woman's purse turned upside down and And we were like it is kind of like that but it's like why can't there be different shapes in different places like why does each shape have to only be on that area it's it well we also realized because of Cher's mother because Cher's mother played one of the models Mm -hmm. in that episode of I Love Lucy where they go to Paris (laughs) and and remember and Ricky and Fred get them clothes made out of burlap Uh sacks but they're modeled after Pierre Cardin <laughs> clothes because they were so um so chic, right? So avant-garde uh-huh. and just interesting that. Yeah, the draping actually. When you look at that I Live Lucy episode <laughs> and you see the draping of those and the hats. burlap sacks and those hats, you're like, oh, it's a joke on the Pierre Cardin uh-huh. style of the time. Uh-huh. Did you ever see a movie, yeah. Eileen, called Uwe Vu Polly No. It's really good. A friend of ours just gave it to us, but it's it's a veiled uh, story about Pierre Cardin and Diana Vreeland. Very funny, uh-huh. but all the women are wearing um, like metal that's so sharp, right? They have to be like sort of welded into the dresses. <laughs> and very funny. <laughs> It reminds you like of Jacques Tati sort of taking all of that modernism to I, I was thinking, when you talked about his modern city idea, I was, of course, thinking of playtime. Tati. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where he built the whole Absolutely. City. Oh, I wish we had asked him about Jacques Tati now. Yeah, all through I kept wondering who his influences might be, and I actually thought of Salvador Dali. <laughs> and then, of course, well, the Because he worked for his – one of his first jobs was for Elsa Scaparelli. Uh-huh who, of course, worked with Cocteau and Salvador Dali. And Salvador Dali was one of his mentors, as was Jean Cocteau. Right, yeah. It's a, we, were, we were just talking about this this morning with somebody that you would think that he might say that his influences are, I don't know, Dior mm-hmm. and somebody else, some of the people that he worked with that were his early fashion mentors. But really, it's the, it's the cultural denizens of of paris at that amazing moment mm-hmm. it's it's jean cocteau and pasolini mm-hmm. and it's the it's the artists 
that he was um, surrounded by and influenced by and that he says made him who he is today. And then you begin to see that that is in his work. You go, oh, right, it is a little surrealist or it's a little um, experimental or, you know, it's, it's pushing boundaries of what clothes are. It's very, like it, he's approaching clothing almost as an art form instead of as just a, a statement of fashion for this season. Yeah, and that really comes across in the in the, the when you're showing like uh, they're actually kind of housewares, but they look like mini sculptures. Or, and then you look at the hats and the clothes, etc. And you're also thinking like that looks like a moving sculpture that's just t- attached to somebody's body. It's really exciting. I really want that art outwear now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, in his big philosophy behind his furniture design, he called them sculpture utilitaire. utilitaire, so that the furniture was a sculpture and it didn't need to be up against a wall. It can be out in the middle of the mm-hmm. room because you can walk around it because it is a piece of art as well as a functioning piece of furniture. Right. Was it daunting for you in yeah. thinking, like, how am I going to visually represent <laughs> How am I going to shape a film that it's all about a guy with this, in you know, genius level? <laughs> I, I can't tell you. It's been two years of like your head's going to explode because oh, okay. there's so much, so many ideas, so many beautiful mm-hmm. things. And at a certain point, you know, we drank the Kool-Aid and we just fell head over heels in love mm-hmm. with him. So we realized we can't do a catalog of his work. There's a museum show in Brooklyn. There are going to be more museum shows and books where you can really pour through just the amazing amount of stuff he's done. And we chose to really focus on him mm-hmm. and just, you know, we had 70 years of technology to work with, right? I think our first, we have him at Dior in 1945, mm. right, on 16 millimeter film, up till him at 97 mm-hmm. in 4K, right? And he's still saying the exact same mm-hmm. things. He is so authentic and he is just so dedicated and so clearly it keeps you young, mm-hmm. right? Just motivated by creativity and, and just doing more stuff. <laughs> I think for us also, there's a very natural rhythm that starts to happen in a film that is born out of the subject. Mm -hmm. So when we're doing a documentary on Patty Schemmel, it's about the grunge movement. You start feeling that rhythm. And when we were uh, making the Jane Mansfield movie, you start feeling that kind of pop synergy. Uh, And with this one, the, the aesthetics of Cardan start to kind of seep into the way that you present information. Mm -hmm. So it, it does come from the subject. And if you allow it, instead of trying to put yourself on things all the time, we certainly have a have a look and a style. I would say there is, you know, an Ebersole Hughes way of, mm-hmm. of presenting information, mm-hmm. but it's uh, but it does the the subject does help you. They they give you the way of presenting mm-hmm. it. So I don't know that we were that you that we were necessarily intimidated by it, but you do get inspired by it, and then you start wanting to live up to it. So, for instance, like uh, the the circles montage mm-hmm. is something that we were aesthetically excited about trying to figure out how do you bring that feeling across to people that that is such a powerful and uniquely presented image through the eyes of Cardin. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and so like, so I don't know that we feel like, oh, no, we won't live up right. to it because we kind of you kind of feel like your subject lives up to it for you. Like you, you have to you have to 
make sure that you show it enough, I think, is part of it, is that you can get very distracted by what's being said and ha- that you have to present this information mm-hmm. and that you've got 90 minutes to do it in. And then we go back through often on a visual path to just say like, okay, but replace that picture with a better picture mm-hmm. and, you know, amp that up to the next level and open up some space here so that we can actually look at the design for a moment. Mm-hmm. But still, you had to show it to Pierre Cardin, didn't you? I mean, what, what did he do? Well, that's the most nervous. Oh, my oh. God. But that's the most nervous moment in every movie. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the only one we that we didn't have as much of that with is uh, the Jane Mansfield movie because she's not right. alive. Right. <laughs> so we didn't, have to, <laughs> we didn't have to suffer that moment. But, but it but, was uh, very scary because, you know, Pierre can, you know, if you – he shut down other projects – immediately when he doesn't like something mm-hmm. or you do something that pisses him off, he's done mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. So, and we're outing him. He's never come out formally. And I think he chose us because I think he feels maybe it's time. Mm-hmm. So that was very daunting to know pres- that he would watch that for to present that yeah. story. Cause if we got it wrong, mm-hmm. right. He could just say, forget it. These people are out of their minds, but Right. And the word that we got back from Paris, we were not uh-huh. there when he saw that when he saw the film. He watched it at Maxine's. Yeah, he watched it at Which Maxine's. Which he owned, by the way, we for got, those who don't know. Yeah. Which he owned. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, well, we got back word from his nephew, uh, Rodrigo. Uh, my uncle loved the film, as did I. And he said, everything in it is true. Marvelous. And we just breathed out a huge sigh. And he really said fun. he was amazed that you could fit his 97 years in 97 oh, minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and was it really 97 minutes? It is 97 it minutes. It is now. It was 95 then. Yeah, at that point it was 95, but it didn't have credits. So we were, you know, when we did the credits, we said they must be no longer than two minutes long. <laughs> This but, movie has to be 97 minutes. I'll leave it to Pierre to make that connection, right? He's so uh-huh. yeah. Well, and this brings us to this this sense that I think, you know, I think it's it's in the documentary as well, but I think it is a sense. If you, you, if you know the brand, and probably a lot of people do who care at all about design, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. Um, but a feeling that you don't know who he is and that even people who know him feel like they don't really know him. And the sense that there must be a secret yeah. self. There's a... There's an unauthorized biography of Pierre Cardin that is very much trumpeting how unauthorized it is. And and a lot of, you know, its tone is like, we're going to tell you the real skinny here. And so there's this sense that there's a secret past or a secret self that's very, that's very, that you hit right away. And I wonder if that's also your feeling about Cardin, because you keep saying it. So, but he's really so simple. He's so open. Well, I think what we th- what we discovered in making it is that, of course, that question came mm-hmm. up almost immediately in talking to anybody about him, even his close colleagues. But when we started to open up the archival footage, as Todd was saying, from 70 years of creation, mm-hmm. so he's been in some way or another in the public eye being interviewed, we feel like he actually has been extremely open, has define himself for us over and over again. And all you actually have to do is listen. And so we found that the, that the history of the archival material began to shape and tell you who is Pierre. Mm -hmm. So it was not as, as enigmatic as everyone sort of makes it out to be. Well, and as the last of the living couturiers, right? The great French couturiers, the last one living Givenchy died last Mm -hmm. year. 
Is there even a sense of what what people thought would be sensitive? Is it is it his oh, impoverished? That's what I was going to say. I think everyone wants him to be like Karl Lagerfeld, yeah. like Givenchy, like Yves Saint Laurent. That there are these very fastidious, well dressed, you know, people that live in a fancy penthouse with Chopin, mm-hmm. right, with a little exotic mm-hmm. dog. And Pierre Cardin is just a hard-working mm-hmm. guy. He gets up every day and he goes to work. And that's what gives him freedom and what gives him pleasure. So he's not like your typical fashion designer. And that's so good that you he's say that really, because that, to me, was the biggest reveal in the unauthorized bio. And then in looking at the footage of him, he's unkempt. <laughs> Literally, they, they trumpeted yes. that one. Like, he's messy. His workspaces are super messy um, and even disorganized. But, you know, I was looking at it, the footage, and he heart, he looks like he doesn't comb his hair. It's amazing. He doesn't. We asked about hair and makeup, and they said absolutely not. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and you're looking at footage from 1967, yeah. and his hair is yeah, a, mess. a mess. And you look at him today, <laughs> and his hair is a mess. <laughs> That's right. It's not his concern. Like it's somehow like it's you would think also that somebody who has such a strong aesthetic vision about what he wants the world to look like, that he would impose it upon himself. And yet he wears a very simple uniform. He wears, you know, a a blue blazer and a Pierre Cardin tie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he does wear interesting things sometimes to events like he will wear his own fashions and wear something very cool mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, pants that have circles on the bottom of them or, or mm-hmm. something. And you go, Oh, okay. So he is, he is literally aware of his own aesthetic mm-hmm. when he is presenting it, but somehow in his daily life, that's not what he thinks is important about how to, how to be, how to present. Well, in May we did a screening of the first 30 minutes of the film at his Palais Boule, his house in the South mm-hmm. of France for 300 of his international licensees because, you know, he is getting older. So I think he was, you know, pulling out all the stops and flew everyone Mm -hmm. in and put them up, but he showed up and he's never looked better since we've known him. And he was wearing a brand new outfit that he had just Mm -hmm. designed. That was super cardan. It was so Mm -hmm. cool. And he designed a whole new line of clothes that they debuted. Oh, wow. He's 97. Wow. And and (laughs) it's just, and and its hair was not it's right. become a signature in its own way. Yeah. It has almost become its own different kind of signature, right? <laughs> but it is true; he's not precious, um, and and I think that also there's something because he's not one of those diva type of designers who is out there sort of presenting himself to everyone. Then people think that there must be some kind of deep, uh-huh. dark interior secret. Uh, but to some extent, he just lives a fairly straightforward, normal life. I mean, he also is of an era where you would say, there's no real reason for me to be talking about my personal mm-hmm. life to everybody. Right. Uh, I, I have a public persona. I have a responsibility to present my brand. But does that mean I necessarily have to tell you, you know, who I went to dinner with mm-hmm. last night? And so he doesn't he he hasn't ever functioned out of that same thing that we're so used to now, which is that celebrities sell themselves through their public image. Mm-hmm. And so, so there again, seems like there must be some secret, but to be with him for an hour or two, you think no, there's no secret. There's nothing going on that he's trying to keep away from you. 
Yeah, uh, I, w- I was surprised that he talked so frankly. I thought maybe it's maybe it is the background of like being truly impoverished after a grandfather who was prosperous lost everything in World War One. Farmhouses bombed out. Family very impoverished. Yeah. There's even a take in the unauthorized biography that his entire life is a monument to revenge <laughs> because his family right. was brought so low that as as and yet there's a there's an interview that that's so clear when when he's talked early in his career when he could have said something uh-huh. like that and he says no I didn't have an unhappy yeah. childhood we were we were we were poor and it was simple. But it was honest and it was, you know, like. And he said, actually, not coming from money, because as we learned later, Dior, all of them were mm-hmm. rich, came from rich families and were very privileged. And he said, you know, I came from a hardworking family, but it taught me good values. And I think actually it was a privilege to have to go out in the world and make my own decisions and make my way in life. Because what does he say? It just gives you a fresher right. approach and. Uh, and, and creates courage. Right. Then you have to carve your own path, which is harder. Yeah. Right. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so is it like, I like, I, it's funny. That biography is very mm-hmm. interesting because you feel like the writer took some moment mm-hmm. and said, I've turned on him. And now I'm presenting everything through this filter mm-hmm. of, of having somehow been betrayed by Cardan or not gotten what he wanted mm-hmm. from him. And then, the book goes on to reinterpret every single detail that he ever right. says and give you like a give you like a counter punch or counterpoint against it, as though like he's creating lies, he's creating, he's fabricating facts about himself. He's you know everything suddenly becomes through that filter in that in that book, and we found almost quite literally the opposite. Yeah, the book really does suggest that there's any minute now there's going to be some huge reveal of, of something truly scandalous. And, and you do kind of keep waiting, going the tone of it is suggesting there's something big. And then it, and it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we just, we kept finding quite, quite the opposite, which is that the more time that you spend mm-hmm. with him, the more you find this genuine, honest man doing his best to be, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, uh, upfront mm-hmm. and sort of be who he is and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, probably the hottest and, bit of gossip for those who, who, who you know, <laughs> kind of pay attention to celebrity is the romance with, apparent romance, the engagement with Jean Moreau. Yeah. 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 Full romance. Full romance. That, that's for real. Yeah. Yeah. He's a frisky bisexual. Yeah. And... And, you know, you look at those pictures, they're in mm-hmm. love. That's not fake. That was totally mm-hmm. real. And I think, you know, he really went for it. And we don't cover this in the film, but Jean Moreau got um, uterine cancer, uh-huh. right, when they were trying to conceive uh-huh. a child. And when that didn't happen, both of them said, you know, this isn't going to mm-hmm. work. They stayed friends till the day they mm-hmm. died. Till the day she died. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. but it, was he? And did he sustain his relationship with? Is it Andre Oliver? Andre Oliver. Yeah, he they did. stayed. They also stayed friends all the way to right. the end. Um, there's a there's a brief clip in the film of the two of them together at the Victoria Albert mm-hmm. Museum, which is in. There's a. I think it's 1992, right? When, 91. When, when 91. When that when that exhibit 
happens. And it's one of the first, uh, you know, exhibits of a fashion designer at a museum level show. But, uh, but Henri Oliver is there with him. And in the catalog for the book, there is a full page on Andre Oliver as well, and calling him out as having been such an important collaborator throughout Cardin's mm-hmm. career. And then Andre Oliver dies two years later of AIDS. So again, they are friends and collaborators and who knows how much more throughout their entire lives until we lose Andre Oliver in 93. Mm-hmm. So, And you know, Pierre is not one to talk about his private life. He didn't want to talk about Jean Moreau or Andre Oliver. And the more we got to know him, the more he opened Mm -hmm. up about it. But on one of our last days of filming with him, and he's in the movie, his boyfriend came around. And we had no idea (laughs) that he had a boyfriend. And and he didn't say, don't film him. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't interview him, but he's there. (laughs) Oh, wow. So I just wanted to ask about the, the, the monetizing, which made him, you know, I, I'm not sure people actually know how much he's worth. It's a tremendous lot, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So the monetizing of product um, has, has brought him a certain amount of criticism. But of course, a lot of things he's, he's risked have brought a lot of criticism. But this seems like one that right. you see the, among the few disparaging remarks I encountered were over, over this, over like, well, there's even Pierre Cardin um, toilet paper. Um, you know, Which is a myth, by the way. There is, is not Pierre Cardin toilet paper. That's a lie. Yeah. Wow. That's a lie. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a myth, that, but it's, it's about saying that he would go that right. far. Um, uh, it's interesting because you, you're you're correct, which is that people say he tarnished the yeah. brand. It's always sort of in quotation marks. He tarnished the brand. And uh, there is a certain truth to that, which is that fashion does function off of this idea that you want to be associated mm-hmm. with it. And if it, if it gets denigrated somehow in your mind, if the value of it somehow seems bargain mm-hmm. bin instead of you know, top of the line department Mm. store, then uh, people begin to feel like the association with that brand puts you in that category Mm. of, you know, being less than fashionable. Mm. And so it, it certainly happened to the brand of Pierre Cardin. People use it a bit as a cautionary tale sometimes about branding Mm. and going too far with it. And as gets talked about, I think people feel like he somehow, participated in that and was just had just had no taste and suddenly let everything go to a certain level. But you realize that what happened is, is that it got out of hand. He allowed the licensing to go so broad into, you know, 800 plus different license Mm -hmm. deals that there's no way that you can actually manage the product and make sure that everything is that's coming out that has your name on it is of the quality that you would admire. So, uh, so the, the, to some extent, even his removal from the U S market was by choice in the nineties, he decided to just pull out Mm -hmm. and say, you know, I'm just going to stop letting it go that far and and doing those things with my brand. And it's sort of, it, it's allowed, I think this moment to occur Mm -hmm. that people can now, jump over that sort of period where perhaps it is something that went too far and now return to the vision of, of grandeur that it once was. So, so we're getting museum shows and we're seeing that 
the vision of Cardan as something to, I don't know, uh, exalt mm-hmm. again. But the thing is that we've gotten to know just studying his history and getting to know him. He is not a greedy mm-hmm. man. And I think what the general perception was, was here was this megalomaniac who just would go anywhere to make right. a buck and just but the truth is he was the first he was the visionary to even foresee globalism and to foresee that licensing and putting your logo on the outside of something instead of in the on the label mm-hmm. in the back was the way of the future so just like everything he does the business was also just an art that he explored and did what other people hadn't mm-hmm. done and had the wherewithal to just go to you know charter new territory and he was very successful and went further than he ever imagined mm-hmm. and what brand releases anything now without also putting out a line of home furnishings mm-hmm. which was unheard right. of and so he, he, he came he up with that lifestyle in behind behind being a fashion designer and i think when he realized that his name was getting tarnished He pulled back, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of too late. But what he had done in the meantime is amassed a major fortune, Mm -hmm. which then we show in the film he spent the last 30 years spending his money on supporting the arts and sponsoring artists and going to, you know, and a lot of his globalism was to bring work. So, you know, he went to China after the Cultural Revolution and brought them in this whole new industry. They had no money. And he taught them how to use their resources, put their people to work and create, you know, jobs and income. And of course, by doing this sort of magnanimous, artful thing, increased his own fortune exponentially. But it was never out of greed or because he also, you know, he's so rich, but he doesn't look Mm -hmm. like it. He doesn't comb his hair. He doesn't wear fancy clothes. Um, He puts the money to work. And it's very inspiring that way. But, you know, to the outside world, it just looks like he's a greedy, you know, egomaniac. Yeah, I wasn't even aware until reading about it that that was even a thing. Somehow I hadn't been, been aware that that was part of his rep. But, yeah. When you realize he actually created the label right, queen, right. Right? he's the reason we wear logos so proud and uh-huh. big. That was Pierre Cardin who said, you know, join my club, wear my, <laughs> wear my logo and show the world you've got good taste. <laughs> right. Well, and I noted that it's amazing. He, he not only owns Maxime's, the, the legendary um, uh, restaurant night spot of Paris, um, but he also owns the Marquis de Sade's um, castle, right? Which was falling it's down. Falling, yeah. falling yes, down. And, well, it was. And, of course, he came in, restored it, and turned it into a, a, a theater festival and a place to present right, more art. Right. He's had a festival there now for 18 mm-hmm. years. And... You know, it's very controversial because some people say he came in and took a little village and mm-hmm. bought it and, you know, ran the people out. But actually, the people who live there said he came into a town that was, you know, falling apart at the seams and gave us all a new reason to live. And now we're a tourist mm-hmm. attraction, as is all of Europe. But, um, you know, he's done a lot for the mm-hmm. economy there and he's buying a lot of 
It's so interesting because that house he shows us at mm-hmm. the end of the film, he just buys old castles. Right, yeah. Like if there's an old, if you've got an old chateau <laughs> sitting around, <laughs> he wants it. Exactly. And, well, he yeah. fixes it up and then he hires people to take mm-hmm. care of it. He has like so many people. If he meets you and likes you, you're wow. on the payroll and he'll figure out something for mm-hmm. you to do. And that's what he does with his mm-hmm. fortune. It's kind of fabulous, mm-hmm. right? Well, and I, it's interesting, his relationship to theater, which seems like a big deal to him. He, he said his first, his, one of his first desires when he was very, very young was to be an actor. And of course that went by the wayside, but, yeah. but he's still a really invested which in we were theater. Surprised and that about. seems like an yeah. interesting thing to talk about in relation to his you know, his art, his, his fashion, his, the products for everyday living. It seems, it seems like there's an, an interesting set of connections you can draw out there. Yeah. It's sort of a theater yeah. of life, right? He is, he is interested in this sort of theatrical presentation mm-hmm. of the self, the theatrical presentation of your environment. Um, you know, it's, it, there is a, there's a showy nature to everything Pierre Cardin. And outside of Paris, you wouldn't know that he owned a theater for 52 mm-hmm. years. The Espace Cardin. And, you know, it's a huge theater. It gave a lot of people, you know, that's where Gerard Depardieu mm-hmm. started. He discovered Gerard Depardieu. Uh, Sharon Stone's in the film. He met her and said, you're going to be something, mm-hmm. right? She's oh, 20 really? years old and, and he gave her confidence. Oh. But yeah. he saw her as a, as a great beauty. People say he is clairvoyant and we sort of experienced it, right? He just met us and said, yes, he just looked in our eyes and that was yeah. it. But you um, really did have the Cardin experience, it sounds like. Well, and everyone who works for him has the Uh same story, right? Including Jean-Paul Gaultier and Philippe Stark. They just walk in, he looks at you, and he's like, all right, go upstairs, you're hired. (laughs) And he says you'll work for him for two days or life. (laughs) And it does seem like that. We don't know which one we are Someone someone who can see is going to come up to you on the street one day and say you. (laughs) Right? Right. And his taste in theater is very Mm -hmm. avant-garde. And so, you know, he's one of those guys who just produces these huge productions that I don't think he's had a really Mm -hmm. big hit, but it's just nice that if it's not a success, he's not mad. Right. He's so appreciative of anyone creating Mm -hmm. art and that they've given it their best. As long as, you know, their heart's in it, then he's very Mm -hmm. satisfied. Wow. Yeah. And no, and yeah, anyone investing in theater, if it isn't, I don't know what the mean girls musical <laughs> by this point, he knows he's losing right. money. Doing it. <laughs> right. Though I hear you well, to see the Cher he, show. I hear. <laughs> How was that? Yes. I don't want to diss, you know, contemporary theater. It, it was yeah. so much fun. It's so silly, but you know, it's just a really good time. <laughs> that would be that wonderful was, experience in the theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's closing soon. So we just happened to be in New York and we had one night off and we thought, you know, the one thing we want to do is make sure we've seen the share show before. It I, when I thought I was going to get to go to New York, I looked up the shows and that was the one I was going to go see myself. I'm with you. It's hard to go wrong with that. Yeah. So, so last <laughs> words on Cardin. You posed for yourself a question um, on your – at least I, I'm assuming you wrote your IMD, IMDb blurb on the movie, which is, you know, okay, who is Pierre Cardin, this sense of ongoing mystery? Did you feel like you wound up with a with an answer of any kind to that? Or is have we got to just accept the mystery? No, I think we came up with a definitive and, answer. It's just not right. what you expect. It's a lot more simple. And it's – it's that this man really is who he claims right. to be, right? He's been being interviewed since 1945, and he has never once 
changed his philosophy or his mm. point of view. And it's very beautiful, right? It's very inspiring and it's very simple. It's it's very mm-hmm. pure. The and, last li- the last line mm-hmm. of the movie is that he says, "I'm not here to impose, but to propose." Mm-hmm. And you feel like that 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 little kernel of philosophy presents him, which is that he has tried to figure out how to propose a vision of the world through being a mm-hmm. couturier. And it's his, it's his dedication to futurism. It's his dedication to optimism, mm-hmm. the idea that the world can be a, an, a sort of incredible, colorful place with, as Sharon Stone says, an exclamation mm-hmm. point put at mm-hmm. the end of it. Uh, you know, and as a man, he is a hardworking individual who believes that through an honest day's work, you elevate mm-hmm. yourself. And I don't, it's not much more complicated yeah. than that. I think that that is who he is at mm-hmm. his core. And has he had personal relationships? Have these things happened in his life? Has he had disappointments and achievements? Yes. But his own guiding principle seems to be that if you work hard, you will stay happy. Hmm. That suggests that I should be happier than I am. God damn it. <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. All right. Mm. Well, he even says, like, you know, vacation for me is no fun. Like, I, working is what's fun. Well, I tell you. If you do what you love, I suppose, also is part of it. You have to really be somebody who is engaged in doing what you love. As a person in my mid-50s, it was a perfect time to meet someone like him because you begin to realize, oh, my God, your life is just starting if you wanted to. Right. And you can accomplish everything you've ever dreamed of. You just have to work. You have to start. (laughs) You can't wait for later. Right. And work in that way. That's about about loving what work is and loving, you know, your day and loving what the what the world does have to offer it, you know. And doing working, things with joy like a slave, instead of resentment. Yeah, working like a slave for the man and having a you know a, a terrible feeling about your workday is not what right, he's talking right. about. Yeah, you know, it's engaging with your own passion and your own creativity. It's being interested and enthusiastic. Right. There's another great thing where someone says, "How do you deal with people who don't like you?" And he says, "Well, I don't ask people to like me. I prefer to like wow. others." Mm. Wow, this is all getting. That's what we Getting say. to the point where he's like, he, you know, Joan of Arc on trial. <laughs> but he answers the question himself. And that's what I think that we keep saying is that we, if you listen to the man himself and his own words, he does answer the question, who is Pierre Cardin? Well, then when we were at the Palais Boule with the 300 licensees, many of them had never met mm-hmm. him before. But it, we're a cult. <laughs> we're all so inspired by him and love mm-hmm. his work and also he's funny he's not serious he loves to have fun he loves to be silly he's you know and listen you know it's funny talking about share too because they are these incredible people and it is part of why people are so drawn to who they are and they do know that they are the star mm-hmm. of the room and you do relate to them through that as well like share holds herself in a, in a certain way. And you know, yes, everything is, is great. 
as long as there's a certain way that you are respecting the level of person mm-hmm. that she is. And I would say the same thing with Cardin. He is, you know, you say like, oh, he's like Joan of Arc. And you're like, no, no, no. He has his hard mm-hmm. side to him. And he certainly controls his uh, his empire. empire. Mm-hmm. And people fall in line into it. And you are you should not fall outside of the lines of what that is. And I'm sure that there are prices to pay when you do. Uh, but, but it's, uh, it's, it is mm-hmm. pure too from both of those kinds of people. They are exactly who they are and they, and they control the room by their own mm-hmm. charisma. Certainly even Cher's tweets, uh, uh, you know, were so memorable because it was just like, Oh my God, she actually sounds like what you imagine Cher would be. And they really seemed like, unvarnished like it isn't a PR team doing her tweets for God's sake. Correct. Right. She yeah. is who she is. And she and she is so nice in the room. And what we were immediately struck by from her is that she listens. And so when you are in a conversation mm. with her, and I don't know why that seems so remarkable when somebody is famous that they actually listen to the person that they're talking to. But it was remarkable. And there's been something very similar in this uh, relationship that we've been lucky enough to participate in with Cardan, which is that, you know, he's very aware of other people, their talents, mm-hmm. who they are. It, it is, it, it is a one man show because it all revolves mm-hmm. around him. And yet it's a, it's a very generous mm-hmm. world. And um, I think it's, we might suffer being called a fashion documentary because you're going to come wanting a certain thing. And we have a lot more in common with something like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, (laughs) where, right. It's just someone you don't think about that's actually changed the world. We live in tangibly. There's a clear correlation between things they did and the way Mm -hmm. we live today. And just remarkable, these kind of unsung people who have done these things for all of us and made our lives better and didn't ask for anything, right? Mm-hmm. We hope it inspires the millennials because, you know, a work ethic just seems to be something that is dying. That's an ironic thing to say because most people feel like they're working all the time, but it's that completely undesired kind of work. People like, you know, are slaving away at horror, at horror show jobs just to try yeah. to make it. But I know what you mean, because there's also just this fear of even creative work. My favorite work work advice is from Andy Warhol to, to Lou Reed. And he just kept saying, Lou, it's just work. <laughs> Why, <in other> words, <laughs> what are you so afraid right. of? Just do it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm always right. saying to myself every time I've got writer's block and then I've got a deadline, I mean, it's just work. <laughs> just work. It's just work, Eileen. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. It's been a well, fabulous, takes- fabulous interview. So I'm really looking for, I'm only halfway through the movie. I can't wait to see the rest. It's it's debuting at the Venice Film Festival, which is coming right up, isn't it? Correct. Yes. September 6th is the world premiere. We're in this really cool mm-hmm. section called Giornati degli Ortori, which is uh, also colloquially just called Venice mm-hmm. Days. But it's, uh, but it's the um, days of the auteurs. And so that we're in sort of this beautiful little independent film mm-hmm. section of this huge, you know, Hollywood film festival at this point, uh, it just feels exactly right. And it feels like the right kind of place to be presenting what, 
you know, the world premiere of Pierre Cardin. And we're up for The Queer oh, Lion. Really? Which is very interesting, too, because, you know, our film certainly is not about his personal life. It's mm-hmm. part of it. I, I hope people, young gay people, look up to him. Right. Yeah. And the way he lived his life. And everyone. We were talking to this woman who said, God, he was such a futurist and everything, even down to being yeah. gender fluid. Right? He sort of foresaw that you didn't need to be one thing or another. You could just be a person. Right. No, yeah. he's really an exciting figure. I had no idea. So it's, it's been a real reveal. I mean, I knew like the Beatles suit, the, the collarless jacket, which even now is radical, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was right. so much that I had no idea about. Oh, and the stuff, I mean, I had to, we had to cut out the <laughs> record label because we just didn't have time. But, you know, he designed Edith Piaf's trapeze oh dress. And was with her when she came up with Jenna Regret Rien. Oh it's like, it yeah, just goes he's on like everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he really is. touches on exactly. so many aspects of society. Exactly. He knew everybody. You know, there's this, you know, him and Nelson Mandela. You just go, I know, yeah. right? It's amazing. <laughs> exactly. well, so, congratulations, you guys. Yeah. This is, do you have any Thank idea so about much. release or are you and just going to wait and see who, who won? We don't yet for the mm-hmm. for the U.S. We've sold seven okay. territories internationally already. Um, we did mm-hmm. them as pre-sales to sort of even help to right. fund the film. But the unthinkable, we're a theatrical release in Russia, China, wow. Japan, Australia, Your Israel. Travel. Right. Oh, well, so Israel, Italy, yeah. Israel is TV. So. Israel is TV. But, it, but so, yeah, the... the um, the film will come out right. internationally, which makes so much sense because he is the you know right. the international man, and we are we have sort of uh, held back mm-hmm. until this moment of presenting the work the film to the world to be able to say what's the right partner for right. us going forward for the for the major territories that it that you know we really hope that it will play well in the mm-hmm. U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, uh, you know the the places that uh, that we feel like. Will will want to be you know seeing and learning more about Pierre Cardin. So we're we're hopeful. I guess it's a it's a fun thing mm-hmm. to be at this moment right before a world premiere because you're kind of everything's available and everything's possible. Yeah. But truly, that we met him when right. he was ninety five, and we were so nervous that we couldn't get it in the can <laughs> in time. And now he's ninety seven, and he's going to oh be at the God. premiere at the Venice Film Festival where he is. You know, he's born in Venice, so it's just... Wow. And the most important question, what are you going to wear to the premiere? Ah, Oh, God. Silver and gold. (laughs) We tried tried desperately to get a Beatles suit made for us. We asked the Cartan Atelier if they would design something for us, but of course they're French and closed for the summer. For August, right. So we might end up in... Trina Turk. Yeah, you guys are fashion ready anyway. <laughs> All right, well, thank you again. It was wonderful talking to you too. Oh, it's so it's nice delightful. To to we, we really need to talk when we're not, you know, recording a podcast. <laughs> and please exactly. pack up that husband and come I out know. To I must be crazy. I'm the only one of your friends probably who's never visited. Oh, you'd be surprised. A lot of people have not. Well, also, you know, the, the guest room is the Elizabeth oh Scott suite. Oh, my God. Suite. That's right. It's Covered in Elizabeth Scott oh. posters, so you'll be oh. very happy in there. All right, I got to plan a vacation. <laughs> <laughs>